Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. If anyone doesn't know me, I'm Michelle, and um, I am one of the garden leaders, and I've been involved with that for years, and despite the fact that Nikayla says I've been digging the dirt all my life, it's probably true since I was young, but I actually took a foray away from digging in the dirt as a kid. It wasn't really my interest. Animals were my interest for the longest time, and kind of made a circular journey back to caring for the earth. Um, as I worked in agriculture, I realized that agriculture was actually really hard on the land and hard on the animals, and actually, as a result, I think really hard on people. And I think we're just learning that. And so I could have stayed in agriculture and done research in agriculture. However, research in agriculture wanted me to uh, band-aid some of the many problems in agriculture. And I really kind of at a point felt like there needed to be a systems revolution. And you can't really tell that to your funder who says, heck no, we're not changing our system. <laughs> That's way too expensive. Or why would we go back to what our grandparents did? That's way too backwards. And so it was in that state of like, oh my gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, <laughs> that I actually discovered upon um, land kind of work and horticultural type of work. And I started building gardens with children. And that was kind of my foray into gardening and, and really growing gardens intentionally. I was privileged to born, be born in Vancouver and everything grew there naturally. And then <laughs> as I cared about gardens here in Calgary, I realized, whoa, we really do have to work to produce from this land. Um, I've lost my text. Oh, thanks. So, yes, I get to preach on Sabbath for the land, and this comes out of Leviticus 25. Oh, oh okay, it is. You put this in there. <laughs> okay, I hope I didn't lose all the rest of my slides then. Okay, <laughs> thanks. The Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, tell the people of Israel this, when you enter the land, I will give you, have a, let it have a special time of rest, Sabbath, to honor the Lord, you may plant seed in your field for six years, and you may trim your vineyards for six years and bring in their fruits. But during the seventh year, you must let the land rest. This will be a special time to honor the Lord. You must not plant seed in your field or trim your vineyards. You must not cut the crops that grow by themselves after harvest or gather the grapes from your vines that are not trimmed. The land will have a year of rest. You may eat whatever the land produces during that year of rest. It will be food for your men and women servants, for your hired workers and for the foreigners living in your country. It will also be food for your cattle and the wild animals of your land. Whatever the land produces may be eaten. Um, next slide. All right, so one thing, the first thing I want you guys to notice is that the land is worthy. Very often I feel like in Western culture, we treat the land as it is like maybe our slave or somehow very much beneath us because we stand on it. <laughs> and that's kind of, the due diligence we give it. And even me, myself, who care about the land, I notice in my habits that I don't really treat the land as worthy. And I don't think that's actually what God intended. Um, both of these next passages, they're really to show you that God actually really, really cared. 
so in Leviticus 26, 27, 35, and if he says, in spite of this, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile towards me. He does, there's some other curses, but basically then he goes into, I will scatter you among the nations and will draw my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years, all that time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbath. All that time that it, oh, maybe that's double. <laughs> okay, so the land is going to get its Sabbath. God said it's going to get its rest with or without you. <laughs> it's really important. And then in Second Chronicles, now when people have been sent off, he took into exile those who have escaped from the sword to Babylon, and they were servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. And in these days of desolation, it kept the Sabbath until 70 years were complete. Wow. <laughs> God actually cares. Like, this is not just a oops, like, hey, for your benefit, people do this. I care about this land. And so where did that care come from? I'm going to take you on a journey back to Eden. So, yeah, next slide. Genesis 1, 11 to 12, then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed and according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So before man, land is good. Okay? Now we've very much been like, we're the darling of creation. Nothing is very good till we show up. But I'm going to argue that it's only very good because all of the things are there in harmony when we show up. Okay, so here we have Genesis 2, 5 to 7 and 15. Now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no human to cultivate. And I put in the other translated word, if you follow that word through the Bible, that other, the word that's used for cultivate is also to serve, and it comes up hundreds of times as to serve. Okay, so it's not cultivate as in to make the, to enslave your land, <laughs> as in to work it just for you, it's to cultivate as in to serve. Then the Lord formed the man of dust from the ground. So again, um, in Hebrew, this is Adamah. So from the Adamah became the Adam, right? The Lord formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living person. Then the Lord took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate. And again, that's the same word, serve and tend it. Okay? So the reason I am going back to Eden and all these verses and, and to try and make this point here is, again, we often think that the land was put there to serve us, you know, to be our kind of our fridge that we keep taking our food out of. And, yep, empty the fridge, doesn't matter. God's in control. He'll fill, he keeps filling the fridge, and that's okay. Um, and then I was thinking about this picture in Eden and, and about trees. If anyone hikes, you've probably been to a forest. And I would question you to think if you're in the forest, does the forest actually need you? Okay, would it survive? Would it continue as a forest without you? Perhaps you have an apple tree. I have three apple trees. I treat them very poorly. Often they're not watered from anything but the sky. <laughs> and yet, the apples in the time, they are plenty. So what the heck does man need to even have relationship with the earth for? You know, God could have just put him in Eden and said, go eat the fruit, 
go take what you want, be a spoiled brat, run around, make a mess, and who cares? What is this whole service about? And I would argue is that we have reciprocal relationship with the land. We serve the land and the land feeds us. And it's kind of a holistic picture. Um, Mother Earth, the, the idea of Mother Earth and naming her Mother Earth is a pagan tradition. But interestingly enough, the Bible says Earth birthed man. <laughs> so there is sort of this motherhood. And, it, and again, Earth cares for us. Even though we're very detached from a lot of the things that come from the earth, our things come from the earth. And um, so, but God didn't want to make it that simple. He didn't want to be like, okay, come take it from the earth, walk on, go do your business. But somehow he made this relationship or responsibility to go back and be part of caring for the earth. Um, A little bit of reciprocity. Okay, and then comes along comes the curse. God... Man, man didn't follow God's rule of avoiding the one tree, and now this is what happens to our relationship with the earth. Remember, so in Eden, the earth was feeding us. We were caring for the land. We were serving the land. And now, cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor, you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles shall grow for you. Yet you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread for, until you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So you are the earth, and you will go back to the earth, <laughs> even though it's cursed. And again, how we're tied, Romans 8, 19 to 22. For the eagerly awaiting creation waits for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to, to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope the creation itself would also be set free from its slavery to corruption, into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. Okay, our, our relationships are intimate. We're intimately tied to the earth, good and bad. It groans with us. It walks with us. It's cursed with us. So going back to Sabbath, or um, when we looked at the word, next slide, please. What what do we need? And Nikola is kind of, and some of the other speakers have kind of said, you know, Sabbath is not as simple as like rest, like, oh, we just take a day off and kick up our feet, and that's all. There's something deeper about the Sabbath. It's about rejuvenating, restoring, perhaps releasing, setting the captives free, this special time, okay? So this this year off is uh, is a release for the land, first of all. And the reason I put the buffalo up there is, Buffalo were actually a release for land here in Alberta. This is kind of our history. More and more, there are studies that show that when buffalo were on the land, everything was healthier. Even insect populations were healthier because there were cycles. There were things moving through. So, okay, they didn't have buffalo in Israel, but, um, you know, just taking down those fences, saying we're going to give the, year, the land a year off, the animals can move through, wild and domestic, they're churning up the ground with their hooves. They're re-aerating it. They're putting back nutrients into it because as we're harvesting and harvesting, we're taking off nutrients, especially intensive agriculture. You know, it's the same thing over and over and over again. So they're doing that. Wild animals, things like buffalo, as they move in, they're bringing seeds from somewhere else. So they're pooping out seeds that came from somewhere else. They're increasing that biodiversity. And then as they move on, they're taking that kind of stuff from one piece of land the way to the next piece of land. So again, they're, they're helping with those earth cycles. 
But it's not just the buffalo that get the release. Um, people, people who worked in agriculture, if anyone works in agriculture, it's a thankless, mind-numbing, hour-long job that you could spend your whole life committed to and never get ahead of. Um, even gardening, <laughs> I'm sure my family sometimes wants to disown me because I'm out there with like, one more weed, I'll get one more thing. <laughs> and, and so you don't take a break um, because you, you kind of are getting this mentality of like, I gotta work the land, I gotta produce, I gotta create. And God says, well, no, take a break. Come, you know, do things. Be in a place, and again, this goes back to Eden, right? The land facilitated our relationship with one another and with God. And so this is kind of like the eating year of like, again, remember what it is like to be with God and to be with man and not to work yourself silly for the sake of working yourself silly. Um, the, the last people who are released are the marginalized. In um, kind of in the end of the passage, it tells you the list of all the people who are allowed to eat from the land. So basically anyone can eat from the land. Okay, before, you know, it's really the harvest. The harvest belongs to the people. The people who are managing the land or stewarding the land can eat and can hold that harvest. But now it's whoever goes there, they can, they can go glean the fields. So it's not a necessarily a poverty year, an abstinence year, or anything like that. It's just it belongs to whoever comes by gets to eat from the land. And I think this speaks to a bit of land ownership. I think it's tempting because... The Bible says um, several times, I will give you the land, I will give you land, go and possess the land. And I don't know if that's an English translation problem, although I did look it up and I will give you is similar to I will make with you a covenant. Okay, so it might be that, hey, God is treating us the land. And again, the Israelites would have realized that this is actually not their land, even though it is given to them for a period of time. They are more like stewards, so again, more like that uh, Genesis responsibility. You're, you're made responsible for the land, yet it's not yours. And, and God reiterates this. He says, the land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently because the land is mine, the gods. For you are only strangers and residents with me. So for every piece of your property, you are pr to provide for the redemption of land. Okay, you can't sell it, it's not yours. You're not the landowner. You're a tenant, you're temporary. And um, if you go back to Leviticus 18, and the reason God gives for the Canaanites being kicked out is he's saying, you know, they defiled the land with violence. So if we are violent, the land itself will actually tell us, get out. <laughs> but as for you, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments, so the land will not vomit you out should you defile it, as it has vomited out the nation that was here before you. So again, the land's pretty big in this relationship. It says, hey, I could kick you out too. Not just you ownering over me. Um, again, we've gotten this very strict vision of ownership because that's what was passed down to us generations. But again, I don't think that was what was intended for the land. And um, Another note on that is I don't think the land was meant to make anyone rich. And we often see in the Western culture that the land actually does make some people very rich at the expense of the others. An example of this is in Luke 12, where a parable is given to people. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began thinking to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? 
And he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and I will store all my grain and goods there. And I will say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years to come. Relax, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. That very night, your soul is demanded of you. And as for all that you have prepared, who will own it now? Such is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich in relationship to God. Okay, so again, we do this very subjectively or subversively, but often land is making some rich and not others rich. And we go, oh, well, we have more riches. Let's just store it up so that we can go retire, um, go kick up our feet, have a relaxing time. But God and Luke is very big about the poor, like the poor are with you. Take care of the poor, feed the poor. Uh, in having this year of land, all of a sudden that system where you keep accumulating is broken. Now God, again, like I said, I'm, he's not trying to make the farmer poor. He says your crops will last you to that year, but they will just last you. So it's like you going to your fridge and saying, okay, this is what I have to eat for the next year. It doesn't run out. It's kind of magical like the menorah, but at the same point, there's, it's going to be emptied. You have to use what you have. You have to eat out of what you have, that freezer, that deep freeze that's packed full of food. <laughs> You're stuck eating all that stuff now until the next year when you can um, go back to sowing your seeds and then the year after where you get your harvest. It wasn't meant for one man to get rich. It was meant that we... You know, we accumulate for a while, but then we have to think about others. And I think again about the year of Jubilee and about how land is restored to original tenants in the Israel system. And the other thing I thought about is, again, if you're practicing very intensive agriculture and you're just abusing the land year after year after year, and then at year 49 you go, oh, well, have it back. <laughs> what have you really given back? You've given back poverty. And now you have a system that's more and more poor because people say, well, you know, so-and-so needed a loan and made a bad choice, so therefore, I'm going to max out, win on this one, and, you know, get as good land and get all that I can out of the land, and then I'll hand it back. And it's a problem now. No, God's actually creating a way that that land stays healthy, so that when you turn over that deed again, when you turn over that responsibility, the next person has handed up something that's healthy. And I think about just generations you know, that come after us, will we be handing over what is healthy? So it is time to think healing. And Nikayla gave us some beautiful things that we can do. So hopefully I can inspire you with some real practical things. Robin Wall Kimmer, who wrote, wrote a really good book about basically these ideas, is, um, says it's not the land that's been broken, but our relationship to it. And so I want to challenge you today to think about your relationship to the land and whether you can be part of healing that relationship. So I have four things to suggest that could be part of it. Number one, I would say, is to acknowledge and listen and learn. So just like a broken relationship with a good friend of yours or a family member of yours, before you go and try to do all these things to fix it, you might need to listen to what needs to be fixed. Uh, I really appreciate land acknowledgements. Again, we often acknowledge the people, which I think is a big part of it, who have been stewards and who have been trying to practice this kind of land care. 
but I also appreciate, for example, Jeremy's land acknowledgement where we see the visuals of Bowness, of that clean water that we've been blessed with because people cared and had a relationship with the land. It might be going out to the land and sitting, sitting in a garden and seeing who you hear, whether it's the voices of the birds that we hear right now or what you hear in the wind. Maybe um, you'll hear God. Again, if we think back to Eden, land in this relationship, was it facilitating our relationship with God? Was it facilitating fellowship with one another, being in that space? So, yeah, that's the first thing, is kind of be in that posture of acknowledging and listening. In Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Wall Kimmerworth says, you know, think about th saying thank you for what came from the land. We've made it harder because we've made certain processes so that things are further removed from the land. But if you even think plastics, like plastics, you're like, well, that's not natural. But plastics came from oil. Oil came from deceased creatures. So it's thousands, maybe millions, maybe trillions of years ago that those creatures were alive. But at one point in time, those things were alive. And that living chain fed what we have now, even if it's a plastic. Uh, my second, I guess, piece for you is to think about consumption, and I think this is where we really, really are hard on the land. We're used to having a lot of things, and again, this is just as much directed as me um, as to anyone else. Nikayla uh, listed a few ways to consume less or think about consuming less for economics' sake. So we have that freedom economically if we consume less, or if, you know, we get to know our our uh, neighbors. I am. Um, I don't have a lot of grass, and I've always wanted to turn it all into garden, but I still do have patches of grass. But I intentionally was like, I'm not going to buy a lawnmower. And so I was the, I've been the awkward neighbor who's borrowed lawnmowers from all kinds of different people, and people I would have never been in relationship with had I not needed to borrow their lawnmower. And borrowing something from someone puts you in a different place of relationship with them. Like, I was dependent on them versus hey, I'm going to give you my fruits of my labor. I'm going to be the, the top-down one. No, I had to be dependent on those people. And, you know, it made for some interesting relationships. Uh, other, other ways people have tried to approach this is, you know, buy nothing years. And I was laughing to Nikayla because um, I actually patched my underwear this year. So I didn't have to buy new underwear. <laughs> So maybe a little bit weird and quirky. <laughs> My husband's laughing at me too. <laughs> but you know, to truly buy nothing, can we be creative? Can we decide, you know, what we where where is the line of garbage? Um, other things people have done is is made themselves match any unnecessary purchase. So I guess you'll have to decide what's necessary. But most of the time, it's it's food and then everything else. Um, but match every unnecessary purchase or every desired purchase with that same amount going to, so to something that's not of you, so to a charity or something like that. Um, so for example, Kyle and I took a big trip for his 40th birthday, and I, I felt a little bit guilty because, again, it's our privilege that lets us go on such a trip. And so I took the same amount and I decided to donate to the Canadian Food Grains Bank, which not only is trying to feed people very practically, but they're also teaching education in agriculture. So as much as I'm spending on myself, I'm hopefully spending on some others who will 
try to be good stewards of the earth. Um, but <laughs> let me tell you, I don't know if I don't know if you're like me, but having to spend double as much on something makes it that much harder to buy something. It makes me really decide if I really, really want that thing because. Gosh, even though it's charitable and I should care about all these things, I'm like, oh, do I really want to give away that much money? <laughs> so it's hard, but it, it kind of keeps our consumption down. Um, so basically, you know, the good old R's, reduce, reduce, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle. So reuse, if you can think of a creative way, you were talking about the beautiful quilts you made, um, and I was thinking, you know, can you make a quilt out of scraps? I have an old t-shirt quilt, and it's kind of fun because I kept my memories, and it served a purpose as a quilt. Um, recycling, there's also kind of unique recycling programs out there. I recycle through a program, an organization called TerraCycle, and there's, there's things you have to pay for, but there's also free campaigns. So if you do a little homework, there are ways you can turn things back into more natural items. And then finally, I would say consume intentionally. A lot of our products, it's about cheap, 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 and you get what you pay for. And so maybe even the smallest thing, um, and at, with all these things, I think, you know, start small. Don't make it all about, I have to do everything, and oh man, I'm feeling guilty because I can't do everything. I think the more you, it, Pick one thing and go for it, and, and love it, and do it great. And um, there's a store called Greenbrier Market in Parkdale, and again, it's not cheap, so that's why I said, you know, maybe you have to start small. You have to start with one product, but they have reduced a lot of uh, packaging on, on all their materials. They try to get local materials if they can. The products are fairly natural, so the closest form to natural that they can. And so again, they're trying to make conscientious products available for people. They are local. They're a little local business. So if you can, maybe go check them out and see what they have. And finally, think about planting something. Get your hands dirty. We are the dirt. <laughs> it is, it's the same microbiology in the soil as it is in our gut. Um, so the healthier that soil is, the healthier your gut is, the healthier your food is. If you don't like gardening and you don't like planting, think about a little thing, a tiny little patch for the pollinators, a tiny little pot. Again, a tiny little pot of lettuce. Don't, don't have to go big. You don't have to save the world with your planting choices and your gardens, but you can if you feel passionate. <laughs> but I think start small and every little piece. If, you know, if pollinators, if bees had every little yard that they could hop to, um, they, would, they would be healthier. And so there are just, these are just tangible ways you can give back. And so I encourage you to think about, you know, start with that reflection and think about, are there ways that I can start to love this land? All right. Dallas? Um, for communion today, I'm actually going to read a redacted form of a paper that I wrote for a class last semester or last year I took on creation and theology. Um, and I specifically wrote it on um, uh, theology of topsoil. And so I'm going to read part of that and then kind of connect it back into the communion table for us today um, as we come to a close. Christ's life, death, and resurrection have implications for the entire created world, not just for humans, as Michelle already said. Jesus became fully creature in alignment with the nature of all other creaturely beings. The cross 
signifies Jesus's abundant love that is poured out over the earth to restore relationship and harmony between creator and creation. Jesus takes on the suffering of the world and dies, yet Jesus does not remain dead. The resurrection of his body births a new way of life. Death is not the end of the life-death life cycle. I want to draw your attention to the way the story of Christ's death and resurrection is told by the soil. Just like Jesus, the life of soil, and consequently many other forms of life, are nourished by creaturely death. The earth gives birth to new life in plants and food that is later harvested and eaten by other living beings, becoming alive once again. When you pluck a wild strawberry from the land, the strawberry becomes a part of your living body, just like the way Jesus' body and blood become a part of our body at the communion table. Christ's ministry and his ultimate sacrifice on the cross had a great deal to do with restoring life for that which was dead. Topsoil contains millions of organisms and sequesters more carbon from the atmosphere than anything else on Earth. Topsoil is one of the most underappreciated natural resources. Without healthy topsoil, there is no clean air, there is no nutritious food or clean water. Topsoil is the fertile material necessary for life. The World Wildlife Fund reports that half of the topsoil on the planet has been lost in the last 150 years, and we are expected to run out of topsoil in the next 60 years. This should matter to Christians because topsoil is a living body. The erosion of topsoil is the erosion of life, but compost in its essence is fertility. It gives birth to new life as it breaks down what is dead and returns it back to the earth in a new form. In other words, where decomposition happens, resurrection happens. Much like Christ in his resurrection, compost is the process wherein dead things are brought back to life. Soil is a witness to the Christ story because it constantly turns death into new life. Soil is the place of hospitality, meaning the dirt that feeds us through the production of food is only capable of continuing this process if we too feed the earth in a reciprocal relationship. The dirt feeds us and we feed the dirt. The soil is the dark, the dark skin of the earth and the earth is God's beloved. John 3.16 articulates God's love for all of creation, not just human creatures. For God so loved the world, cosmon in Greek, that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. The prophet Isaiah also recognizes the significance of all creation. In Isaiah 6.3, it says the, the whole earth, the land, is full of his glory. The soil is the dark skin of our mother, and it is, after all, Mother's Day today. We have largely held the earth in low esteem because of a disembodied theology that says we do not need the earth. The land then bears, bears the consequence of our sin and suffers as a servant of life. The land has suffered because of our transgressions and iniquities, particularly our idolatry, which leads, to, um, which leads us to see the earth as nothing more than a storehouse of natural resources that we might extract, commodify, and consume. The land is suffering for our sins, but like Jesus, through the process of compost or of death and resurrection, the land takes what is dead, rotting, degrading, decomposing, and tenderly nourishes it back into life. 
in more vulgar terms, compost can literally take human excrement, symbolically speaking, the things we are most ashamed of, and make it into new life. Norman Wiersbe, a theologian, says, creation is not a vast lump of valueless matter. It is God's love made visible, fragrant, tactile, audible, and delectable. Because God's love is eternally hospitable and always fresh, creation will always have a place in God's life. Insofar as creatures are wounded and suffering, God is at work to prepare a place in which mourning and crying and pain will be no more. Western evangelicalism has been obsessed with ideas of escaping this world, not restoring it. We focus on saving souls at the cost of beloved bodies. Topsoil should be thought of as one of our relatives. After all, as we've mentioned, humans come from the dirt. And true shalom, true Sabbath is only possible by upholding and pursuing this way of being in right relationship to the world in which we live and we breathe. At the table, we're being invited by the Holy Spirit into the risk of new relationships. The breath of God is the force that enables life in all of its forms and calls us toward one another in radical unity and love. Scripture invites us to turn our gaze toward the earth, not away from it, to love what God loves. So at the table, we receive love and we give love. We take the creaturely body of Christ into our own bodies and we become new. So let's pray. Thank you, God, for the land that made the grains that made this bread at the table, for the land that made the grapes that made this juice. Thank you for the land that made our own hungry bodies and for the church which takes these broken and hungry bodies and nourishes us back into new life together.